Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we're talking with historian John French. John French is professor of history at Duke University with secondary appointments in African and African-American studies, as well as international comparative studies. Over his career, he has served as co-director of the Duke Brazil Initiative, the Global Brazil Humanities Lab of the Franklin Humanities Institute, as director of the Duke's Latin American Center and the Carolina Duke Consortium, and as treasurer of the Latin American Studies Association, LASA, among many other positions. Since 1979, he has been studying class, race, and politics in Brazil and Latin America at large. He has published profusely. Some of his earlier books include The Brazilian Workers ABC, ABC, published in 1992, Drowning in Laws, Labor Law, and Brazilian Political Culture, published in 2004, and a co-edited volume, The Gender Worlds of Latin American Women Workers. Um, today, we're here to talk about his latest monograph, Lula and His Politics of Canning, From Metal Worker to President of Brazil. Published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020, the book is an incredibly rich biography of former Brazilian president maybe future, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, but also a, a rich social history of Brazil's workers, particularly in the city of Sao Paulo. Known around the world simply as Lula, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva was born in 1945 to illiterate parents who migrated to Sao Paulo. He learned to read at 10 years of age, left school at 14, became a skilled metal worker, rose to union leadership, helped end a military dictatorship, and in 2003 became the 35th president of Brazil. If someone needs a biography, it's definitely him. Um, welcome, Tom, uh, to the New Books Network. Such an honor to have you here. Well, thank you for the invitation. So let's start the interview with a little bit about yourself. Could you share a little bit about uh, your formation and how you got interested in Latin American history, um, Brazil in particular? Uh, yes, I was. A, I'm from a family of... Um, my father was a nuclear theorist, the Andrew Carnegie Professor of Physics at the University of Rochester. So it's from a very cosmopolitan background. Uh, I lived for a year in Holland when I was in kindergarten because he was working with um, physicists in, um, in Holland. And then I spent my uh, first year of high school in 1967-68 in Mexico City, uh, living on um, Filosofia y Letras in Copilco, which is the neighborhood next to the National Autonomous University of Mexico, which was at exactly the period of the height of the student movements that were leading, that will lead up to the tragic massacre in 1968. Um, so I was already, I was exposed to, you know, to Latin America at an early age. Um, I learned Spanish. I already knew, had learned Dutch and French. My family is from Canada. Um, and I was so, and then I went back as well for three months on my own when I was eight, when I was 18 before I went to college. 
So I was always interested in history um, and Latin America was also, especially in terms of the politics of Latin America, I was drawn to that a lot. Um, as an undergraduate, I worked on, I, there were no, they had abolished requirements. So at Amherst College, which is a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, I I took just history classes pretty much. I didn't study Latin America, but I studied workers in the U.S. I studied African-American history, um, began to become more familiar with an emerging feminist movement and so on. But my interest was in my senior thesis was on the relationship between um, political leaders and mass movements. And particularly, I was interested in Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the uh, and his relationship with the emerging Congress of Industrial Organizations in the 1930s, which was the great sit-down strikes that unionized basic industry. So the interest between how the political and how the and how industrial relations and you know electoral politics uh, and union life, how this goes together, was something I was interested in um, from a very in a very early age. Um, in terms of the question about Brazil, I actually did I actually prepared and you know. Um, all the way up to my, through my prelims and things like that to do 19th century Mexican history, where again, the subject was in some ways similar to what I ended up doing both as an undergraduate and in uh, my subsequent career, which was I was going to look at Benito Juarez and the wars of reform through the French intervention in the, in the 19th century. So I was again interested in the issue of a new approach, a sort of a a bottom-up approach to understanding how political leaderships emerge and how they work and how they relate to without being completely equatable to the um, to the mass struggles. In terms of Brazil, you know, um, I was, I went to, I switched from the University of Pittsburgh to Yale and my new advisor, Emilio Viocha da Costa, a Brazilian, um, important, extremely important Brazilian historian, who had been uh, forcibly retired from the University of Sao Paulo and then also put on trial for subversion. Uh, she was there, and in her our first meeting, she said, whatever you work on, you're going to be stuck with for 20 years. So if there's anything else you're interested in, I was admitted to do Mexico. Um, this is your last chance. And I said, well, there's strikes happening in the new front page of the New York Times. And she said, well, sign up for Portuguese and write a grant. And that's what I did. So uh, I don't speak Portuguese as well as I spoke Spanish. I've lost my beautiful Mexican accent. I would never pass a, um, uh, one of the last things I did at Pittsburgh was to pass, get an A minus in a graduate Spanish grammar class. I don't speak Portuguese, I don't speak Portuguese at all as well as I, as I once spoke Spanish, but that's how I got involved with Brazil. Wow, and that advice changed your whole career then. Yep. Uh, um, so let's start with the first question that came to my mind when I started reading the book. Why a biography? This is the first time you're writing a biography, right? Mm -hmm. I think the, the question is, there's a, there's a tradition of thinking about biography uh, in relationship to the notion of uh, great men, great ideas, great thought, mm -hmm. great works of art. Uh, thought about as a kind of a, a, a very individualistic a very individualistic um, process or a very individualistic thing that's tied in with certain very backward uh, theories about the way the world works of who's important and who's not important. But actually one of the points about this is that one really is interested if you're actually looking you know, at a, at a historical individual who has had an impact and played a major role, that it's very unsatisfactory to simply say, 
um, well, since there's this, if we look too much at them, we will be ignoring the mass of the population when the real question, which Tolstoy posed and which I discuss in my, my uh, afterward, is that the relation, you have to establish what is the relationship between the figure that is the one that is the more, that stands in history, whether it's Napoleon or what or Lula, Martin Luther King in relationship to civil rights movements uh, in the U.S. There's a reason why certain individuals emerge in the context of mass struggles and historical events as, in some ways, an expression of a much larger uh, collectivity of human beings. And it's not so much the idea of the old fashioned idea of life and times, because life and times is a very, um, is a very limited way of, uh, you know, of doing it. You provide a little paragraph about whoever they interacted with or something like that. But what I was interested in was asking uh, questions of historical causality. In other words, why does this person, how, why and how does this person come to emerge and how does that happening, how does the becoming happen? And then how do we trace it forward from there? And that's pretty much what this book is an attempt to do is to use a very, it's a very distinctive type of biography because there are periods where it's talking about a lot of things that apparently aren't directly about his immediate personal life, but that actually are essential if we're to be able to understand him in relationship to the other other working people in relationship to employers, in relationship to politicians, in relationship to what was in his mind as his mind is crystallizing itself out of a set of interactions. Did you did you have any kind of um, narrative challenges? I mean, like, did you was it hard to find a way to write this kind of biography, trying to? Uh, put together the individual with a larger historical context. And and as you said just now, talking about events that at first glance may seem not directly connected with him. Yeah, I, we were very, I was extremely lucky because the, um, uh, because the working people of the wor industrial workers that emerged in a particularly big way in the 1950s, 60s and 70s uh, was happening at exactly the same time that Brazil's, uh, Uh, University of Sao Paulo, Brazil's first university, uh, was establishing itself. And intellectuals there, young students, a minority of them, but mo and mostly sociologists, were interested in what they saw, quite rightly, as an interesting kind of a Manchester of the third world. You know, the site of one of the earliest, really, one of the earliest massive industrializations, which is going to go from, you know, where in, you know, the, not only is the population Sao Paulo going to emerge as the world's world, one of the world's, you know, three largest cities, but also one of the world's centers of industrial manufacturing. So they set out to study workers, often with Marxist ideas or Marxist influenced ideas. Uh, and there's various generations. So they were out there studying workers starting in 1957 and 63, 67, 68, 76, you know, a whole sequence of Brazilian student movement, which is overwhelmingly white and middle and upper class, um, but the sectors of students that went into entered into struggle for reforms and then the radical student movements of, the, of 1968, you know, they were looking for, you know, for allies and they were interested and they were, you know, relating to workers. They didn't understand who these people were very well or what this was about, but on the other hand, they were capturing workers' voices. 
So what you have in the book is something that, you know, you don't have very often, which is contemporaneous voices of working people, small quotes or small quotes, some, you know, small quotes and interviews and so on. Uh, and then uh, simultaneously, I have I have the um, vast amount. Lula is a very loquacious person and has been from the moment he did his first, not from his first interview in 1975, but from 76, 77 onwards, and loves to tell stories and loves to talk about himself. So what we've got is with him, with his brother, who was a union activist, as well as somebody who became a communist, which Lula was not. Um, we have all of these retrospective interviews, so I'm able to construct something where I've got the retrospective narratives offered by Lula and his, his brother, his family members, other union people, because they became famous through the strikes. And I'm able to track that and, make, and combine that with what one can establish was actually true uh, and actually being said and how families worked and how siblings related to each other and how people found jobs and how they didn't and and so on. So it's able, I'm able to create something that's, that you really very seldom would you have such a rich array of sources, contemporary sources to be able to combine in this fashion. Since you were mentioning them just now, you talked about all the studies that were made in the seventies by particularly um, middle-class students. Um, and it seems at that point you talked of them kind of like intellectuals of bookish assumptions that discuss history and politics using abstract concepts when studying the workers and their attitudes and thinking. Um, there is one example I think you, you bring as a bad example of how they were interpreting um, the, the workers and their thinking. I, I think it was one master thesis that was published right after the military coup um, in 1964, and it was filled with a big pessimism of the big pessimism of such moment. Um, and so, how were you able to? Or would would you say that your book, in a way, tries to revisit those studies, re reinterpret them? Um, and and how were you able to do that? What what is your criticisms of those studies, if you will? Uh, well, I think that the um, uh, you've asked an excellent question because uh, I'm an historian by training. I've been uh, I declared my major the first week of college. Um, I've been interested in history since fifth grade. Um, and historians, I mean, what I've done with these surveys, social science studies. First of all, I would never criticize them in any comments I make about them. The fact is that to have a bad a, a bad analysis that gathered data that's useful is much better than having no analyses. I mean, the number of workers in Latin America and members of the popular classes that no one was interested in talking to, and we will never recapture their voices. On the other hand, the, one of the things about it is that these young people are changing. They're evolving as events happen, and they're learning from events. So it's really an open-ended, it's an open-ended process where in a lot of ways I talk about this as a dialogue. In some ways, the future of Brazilian politics is going to be a dialogue between uh, USP-educated sociologists and a different type of intellectual skilled workers in the metalworking industry, uh, which together are going to produced 16 years of two successive presidents, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the famous, um, the famous uh, sociologist and creator of dependency theory, who ran a program to study industrialization in the early 60s from USP, and Lula, who succeeded him. 
So it's really a very rich, you know, a very rich dialogue. And what I do is to separate out, to, to it's what historians are trained to do. I, where possible, I like to have the original interview materials, the actual notes and things, except lots of people threw out their notes, which is really sad. On the other hand, what I do is I separate out evidence from interpretation. And I extract the evidence. I look at exactly when the studies were done, so I'm aware of exactly at what point this was these, this data was gathered because you know you sometimes something might come out in print 10 years after the evidence was gathered. So by treating it in a very rigorous sense as what we call primary sources, I'm able to you know to extract evidence that I can then reinterpret. So I may not agree with the analysis, and this would be true as well for later analyses that were that were richer and less uh, given to uh, pessimistic conclusions. But on the other hand, I can separate the two things out and make for a much more, you know, a much more scientifically valid sort of a set of generalizations. Um, you were talking before about all the, also all the different kind of materials that you were able to use, but also like interviews that you conducted yourself. I think you were able to interview Andreotti. Um, did you meet Lula himself? And does he know about this book? Um, yeah, I told, I met with, I've met with Lula uh, for the first time in 1991 uh, in, in the trading headquarters in San Bernardo. Uh, we only talked for about we only talked for about five minutes, but you can already get a sense from that, and I could I could already get a sense from that introduction uh, from that moment about what what this what the experience of charisma is like because it was in the middle of a it was after a meeting of, of launching a book about a communist worker that was elected mayor in 1947, and he showed up, and then people wanted him to meet me, and things like that, and then when we spoke. It was a really weird experience because it was kind of as if I um, the the cone of silence surrounded. I mean, everyone is making lots of noise because it's a bunch of guys. I mean, guys like to talk and they're talking loud. Like you don't all you hear is me and him. And he says, "Well, I think you should look into Alfonso Monteiro de la Cruz because he's the most interesting person. I think he's the one who really needs." You know, like it was like an immediate. I felt like you know he was like a. It was an immediate engagement. He didn't know much about didn't know anything about what I was doing necessarily. I hadn't even published my book yet. But it was, you know, it was interesting. And then the second time that I, you know, met him, got to see him in person was in 19, was in 2000. And that was interesting, too. But that was not a personal interview. But it was the year where the his, his party had to change it. If it was going to have a chance to win, it had to change its purest policy, leftist politics and agree to make alliances with non-leftist parties. And He came to Aracaju. I was in the Northeast studying the vote of the PT in the Northeast, which is the region he comes from. And watching him talking with the people, with about 200 people, 200 militants of the PT in the city hall and, a, you know, a large auditorium and things like that, with him pacing back and forth. And he's not somebody, what's really interesting is he's not somebody who gives orders. He's not somebody who commands or whatever. He's sitting there having a dialogue with them and then recalling things. And then they're very, most of them are very, very skeptical and very hostile to the idea that they would change this policy and things like that. And he'd say, well, so-and-so, I remember we were, we were together during the, the 1979 teachers strike in Minas Gerais. Are your workers in the teachers union that you're now leading, are they willing to strike the way you did in 1979? And he said, no. 
Uh, and then his point was he was sort of like dealing with their feelings about how things were. And it seemed after three defeats, you know, it seemed a bad time. And he says, well, maybe we should think about, you know, the idea that maybe if we're willing to change our approach, maybe we'll be able to change the conditions and maybe it'll be a little bit easier to achieve some things rather than sticking to something that's going to lead us to another defeat. And that's exactly what happened in 2000 was the party changed its rules and actually, they, they then proceeded to win more than half of the cities of the Northeast, uh, no, more than half of the capitals of Brazil. But watching him talking with people back and forth and, and people talking back to him, he's not, somebody that is, he's not somebody who insists that people have to show deference or something like that. In fact, you know, that's actually quite interesting. And then the third time I met with him for an hour in 2016, uh, I was with Miguel Nicolelis, a neuroscientist who's been at, at Duke for many years. Um, and I showed him, I guess, and showed him the outline of the book and all that. I mean, tr- in truth, he was not another biography. He's had a bunch of journalistic biographies. This is the first scholarly biography. Truth, he wasn't particularly interested. And I was, you know, he wanted to mostly talk with Miguel Nicolelis about a project that he was supporting Nicolelis in and about what President Dilma should be doing and how can she prove that she, how can she launch something that'll emphasize education is what's important. Because he's very focused on the immediate, uh, you know, on the immediate, uh, you know, the immediate concerns. I mean, yeah, okay, another person writing about me, that's fine. But, you know. But, um, you know, and then I saw him twice after he really, I saw him twice in person after he was released from jail after, um, uh, you know, in 2019. Uh, Once in a small scale, in a small, uh, once in a, a, with a crowd of about 5,000 people in a union hall and once in a smaller private thing of the metal workers at their picnic, a sort of a picnic where he spoke. You know, and, you know, the fact is he's an, he's interesting to watch in operation. You know, he's very, you know, even his physical, the way he physically moves and things like that. He's a very touchy person. You know, <laughs> he's a very touchy person. He's a very, you know, um, you know, and it's always. Yeah, querido this and querido that and all this sort of thing. But, you know, very, you know, he's an interesting watching a politician a master politician, and he is a politician. He's been a full-time politician now for longer than he was a worker. But watching a master politician at work, I mean, everyone has different styles and different ways, but his is a very his is a very interesting one. You know what I mean? And it's not based upon the idea of drawing lines or creating antagonisms. It's always about trying to find connectedness. Um, you were mentioning right now that there were a few journalistic biographies about him, um, but you mentioned in your book that with the exception of Denise Parana's work, uh, they usually rarely mention his family. So mm. I was wondering if we could start there, like who were his parents and in particular, of course, his mother? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, he were, it's routinely, and in my book I do it as well, I'll refer to her as Donna Lindu. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the both both her mother, his mother and father were illiterate uh, from a small um, area, small subsistence agriculturalists in in uh, in the northeast, not in the not in the semi-arid interior, but in the in actually an area that's where the agresci, where agriculture is possible. Um, you know, the, he always refers to him, and I do in the book as Donna Lindu, but actually that that's actually the sort of thing you attach Donna to suggest that the person is not simply nothing. 
it's a sort of a form of respect, um, uh, you know, that's meant to sort of say that. But if you were looking at where his parents fit in the hierarchies of Brazil and everything like that, they're really, they're in the bottom of the bottom, you know, certainly when they start out and everything else. And so it's really a rise from a very, you know, a very, very lowly situation to, uh, you know, to Santos, which is a big port city. And then from there, after she, after she leaves her husband because, he's, because of his violence and his, his abusive treatment and things, she takes her eight, eight children to Sao Paulo, uh, you know, her eight children to Sao Paulo, and then manages to establish the family. And as she puts it, as, I, as, as it's put by many working class single mothers, uh, you know, she can feel satisfied because in the end, none of her boys fell into crime and none of her girls became prostitutes. Um, the book is also the story of Sao Paulo, in a way. The city grew as an industrial center from the 1950s through 1980s. Um, the family that you were just mentioning came from North East to from the northeast to this Brazilian Detroit, as you call it, and that posed its challenges that were shared by many other families. Could you tell us about some of the things you observed about the lives of these newly migrated families? Yeah, I mean the big the the the, the this is actually the largest um, even in the way people write about Wula um, today is that people don't understand this book is written not from the point of view of the people on the, of the educated people. It is anchored in what does the world look like to the people on the bottom? Because the situation in Sao Paulo, it, from the point of view, the 1950s and 60s and 70s in Sao Paulo, from the point of view of where people who migrated from rural areas, first of all, living in slums and shanty towns is not any worse than the houses they live in in rural areas, so it's not the, uh, yet middle-class and upper-class people are horrified when they see a favela or something like that, but they're not actually thinking about what, how do these people live in the countryside, which is very badly, and even worse, because they didn't even have the opportunity for, for electricity or, or running water, or water, access to water anywhere nearby. But the problems are, are you know, immense and varied, but the big Plus, which is why the experience of Sao Paulo for my, this period of mass migration, it horrifies the re longtime residents of Sao Paulo are horrified because they see themselves being inundated by these outsiders brought in by these factories, covering all the ground and all the things. And they see it all. They see it at a very at a distance and they see it as them as suffering, miserable, you know, and all of this sort of thing. But that's not how especially among the young people, because the people who tend to move tend to be, uh, you know, arrive with a bunch of young children like, like Donna uh, Lindu did. Uh, for them, this is a city of opportunity because there's jobs. It's possible to get jobs. There's lots of jobs out there. You may have to work hard. You may not be paid well and whatever. But for the people who don't go there, the first time you actually have cash in your hand for people who come from in rural areas, Cash in your hand is not something that you, you have very often. So from their point of view, Sao Paulo is, the, is, an, is a land of opportunity. It's a place, and especially for young men uh, like Lula, or who are able to uh, be part of a very tiny minority that become skilled workers, which puts them in a great demand and, and, and actually quite good positions in terms of pay and everything else. This is a world of opportunity. 
all of Sao Paulo is full of this. And this, this period of Sao Paulo's history is a story of just immense sense of no, no limits somewhere where we can go or what we can do with ourselves. And it's so amazing. Now, now it's not the experience of everybody because fathers uh, tend to fit, tend to do badly. Fathers end up in terrible jobs because they don't have skills, they don't have education, they're illiterate. Uh, mothers uh, obviously hold families together and so on. But for young men, and also I would add for young women, uh, some young women, uh, the fact is this is a world of opportunity. This is a positive, optimistic period, which is not the way you know, when you get, you know, people writing leaflets, you know, writing about workers from where, you know, sociology students, they're writing denunciations of the horrible mistreatment and the, you know, oppression and domination and exploitation and all of this. But that's not what it looks like necessarily to the people that are going through this. They can come to see it that way at a later point, but it does, isn't how they actually experience that world. And it's also not the way that it was perceived, perhaps, um, by some of the middle class uh, people that you also include in your book. I'm, I'm thinking about the the study by sociologist um, Luis Pereira about the teachers' uh, attitudes and their assumptions and their views on the uh, students they would teach to in primary schools in suburban Sao Paulo. Would you like to talk about these contrasting views? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in all the, I, I by now, because of the the amount of, I have read probably, oh, I don't know, a thousand or two thousand interviews with working people from Sao Paulo as a whole, and a large chunk of that from ABC in particular. But one of the things that you I never find is I never find them complaining about their elementary school because they don't see it. I mean, Luis Pereira, who taught Uh, he's the founder of, so he's a sociologist at USB. I met with him before. He was one of the people who threw out his notes when he moved to an apartment. <laughs> um, he did two important studies, but he had taught at this school in Santo Andre, and then he went back and studied it for a year, and it's an amazing study. But at the same time, his renderings of the, the deeply prejudiced, both, both racially, regionally, culturally, the enormous gap between the teachers, the female teachers who also beat the children, even though they're not allowed to, it's against the rules and things like that, who have very, very negative attitudes about these invaders from outside, many of whom are also darker or brown or uh, even black from Minas in the Northeast. And, you know, but it's interesting because from the point of view of the, um, of the kids, well, first of all, most of them don't finish primary school. Lula is unusual in finishing primary school. He's the only one in his family who finished who finished primary school because it's hard because you need everybody out there from a young age making some money somehow to contribute to the family survival because there's no welfare. There's no social welfare programs. There's nobody handing out money to people just because you're starving or anything like that. So, you know, it's interesting, the, you know, understanding the world the, from their point of view, First of all, it's not that different than the rural areas where you're bossed around by people. Uh, and you go to the city and you're bossed around by people and people look down on you. But, you know, this is the way the world is. They see a world that in which they're in which they accept as simply the way things are. I mean, the majority of the population of Brazil has never believed that it lives under a, in a world where they have rights. 
or a right to talk back or a right to stand up for themselves or a right to complain. Uh, and the fact that they, a group of them said millions of them are going to come to do that in the late 70s is going to change things in Brazil in a profound way. But at the time, who's going to complain about it? You know, yeah, the teachers are stuck up. Yeah, teachers are, you know, are nasty. Yeah, but then so is everyone's nasty. Plus, the teachers beat us. Well, family members be, are allowed to beat children for not being for not being, for misbehaving and things like that. So it's a very, you know, you have to understand the way in which it, uh, the, you know, the, the way in which even things like child rearing are very different in middle-class families than they are in, in uh, families of rural folk or rural folk moved to the city. In the book, you describe several key moments and factors that eventually led Lula to become the person we know today. You actually argued that his style and leadership had developed by 1978, the year of his first strikes, and that it has since remained unchanged. So I want to particularly focus on these formation years. We already talked about his mother, Donna Lindu. Let's talk about one of her biggest successes, getting Lula to finish primary school, as you were saying, and to later enter into the Sinai apprenticeship program. So what was the Sinai and what was their mission? Yeah, I mean the the I mean Brazil is every country is is unique and every country has its particular its things of which it can be particularly proud and its things and histories which are particularly ugly. Um, in many ways, the um, the two things that influence the two influences you know if you're thinking about Brazilian politics in the 20th century, Brazilian statecraft and are in the actions in the top of society. One is, on the other hand, one is the creation of uh, government-sponsored trade unions under Getulio Vargas, which is exactly the context in which Lula is going to enter into political activity in which all political activity of working-class people emerged, which was, in many ways, it's unusual. It's not a normal way to do things in the, in the context of the U.S. or um, uh or many other countries, but it is at the same time was written. It was driven by, on the one hand, a kind of a utopian idea about it creating an organized society. That the problems they're trying to do away with regionalism, they're trying to create a centralized an identification with the nation, and so on. And the idea of organizing a, a vociferous society that is just you know that is has no organic structure to it. So the trade unions that are created by Vargas, who's not, who's, a, who's both a revolutionary leader, a, a congressionally elected president, a dictator, a fascist dictator, and a leftist elected president, all in a short period of, all in a short period of 25 years. Um, that's a, that's a, that, that is a, is an important set of reforms that created spaces. Now, Senai is, a, is in the context of industry, Sinai emerges because industry is developing and you need, especially for in the metal trades, which is the big thing that is emerging in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you need skilled workers, workers who can use their minds, who can uh, you know, do the calculations and so on. And the training program, I mean, you know, the, the, um, the, founder, of, uh, the founder of Sinai uh, had started off training railroads, skilled workers in the 20s and 30s, he's a European. And he came, he came, especially after 1945, when the Vargas dictatorship ended and the new democracy came, he came to embrace a kind of a, really a kind of a reformist approach because to get a reformist vision, again, I think in Catholic, Catholic related image about the idea of the integral person and that 
one couldn't, if you want people to, you want to create skilled workers that will be loyal to the mission of the nation and to the mission of modernizing Brazil and industry and so on. And therefore, if we want them to do this, we have to treat them as if they're not simply people to be ordered around and looked down upon and um, uh, beaten and mistreated, which is what the primary school teachers were doing. So the experience, as Lula puts it, is the experience of Senai, and it's a small number of people. He's admitted, the year he's admitted, it's only 2,400 people are admitted for a three-year apprenticeship. He calls it the moment that he first encountered, you know, that he first encountered um, uh, citizenship. You know, it's a, it's six months in the factory, six months in a school, which is a brand new school built in, in Bras. Uh, it has free lunches. It provides dental care. You do classroom work and then you work at machines. You've got, you, you know, you play soccer. There's student associations. There's a library. There's all this sort of stuff that somebody like him simply out in the street playing soccer and, and hanging out and everything else would not have had access to. So Senai is a really fundamental, becoming a machine, a primero mecanico, a metal lathe operator, um, is really, and it, and it makes him part of an elite, you know, in relationship to uh, the working, working class people as a whole. So Senai, I mean, is a, in many ways, Senai is an interesting, the evolution of Senai and the idea of integral education for the whole man and of some sort of a more horizontal relationship between teachers and students is a vision, again, about the idea of some sort of, it's, it's akin to the, to the idea of creating an organized society in which groups can work together despite their differences on behalf of some common mission. Could it, you were just mentioning that uh, his experience there um, made him in, or yeah, moved him into some kind of uh, workers elite. Could you talk a little bit more about these internal divisions and, and, and diversity within uh, workers groups between those that were considered skilled and unskilled? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the... Um, You know, we're talking about an industry, the, the metalworking industry, which is will grow by the late 70s. There's almost a little under a million metalworkers. And the, majority, the overwhelming majority of the metalworkers are unskilled. Um, and that means uh, in the case of the union that he's going to have, which is an area of large-scale auto assembly plants, I mean, the largest one is a VW factory that employs 40,000 people. A Mercedes-Benz factory that employs 23,000, the Ford factory that employs 15,000. So the vast majority of them are, are peons, are, are, as they called themselves at the time, are unskilled people who have no leverage in the job market at all. They can be fired. And in fact, the, the, one of the complaints that fuels the discontent in the 70s is that companies hire and fire people so that they can't move up You know, they hire at any given year, a factory might turn over half of its workforce among the unskilled because it doesn't, because they can always hire somebody else. But if they let the person stay for another year, they'll get a step up in their pay and things like that. So you have a, you know, you have a, they, they, the, the unskilled have a very, they're the ones who are most, and they receive way lower wages than are, than the skilled workers do. But skilled workers, on the other hand, they can't, you can't simply fire them because there's a shortage of them. And therefore, they have leverage and they have the ability to stand up for themselves more than 
even if it's you know more than than the unskilled do. And the relationship between the skilled and the unskilled is a very is a fraught one, and not a. It's easy to say, oh, they're all workers or something like that, or they're all looked down upon because they get their hands dirty, which is true that that's how the educated classes. And the conservative classes see them. They see them as social inferiors. They don't distinguish between a skilled worker and an unskilled worker. As far as they're concerned, they're all, it's a kind of a caste-like aristocratic sort of thing going back to slavery times. But, you know, the fact is that there's, uh, there's, big, there's big differences. And even among the unskilled, it makes a big difference. If, you're a, if your job is to be a sweeper on the factory floor, you're not a real, you're looked down upon by the unskilled workers. So, you know, there's a, it's not that there's any sort of automatic unity among people just because they work for a wage or they work for a big factory. That unity has to be created. And that's what's hard to do. And watching how it happened and trying to come to understand how it came to happen in this particular set of industries, in this particular place, not everywhere, not in every factory like this, but in the ABC, this particular place, these things happen that allowed this these struggles that are really quite historic and quite amazing. Um, his brother, nicknamed Freitigo, played a definite role in these formative years of Lula. And at times you refer to this history you studied here as a tale of two brothers. With his more combative personality and his interest in politics from a very young age, people would have guessed that if any of the two was going to make a career as a national politician, it was going to be Freitigo. Because we should say also that Throughout this year, you describe Lula as a very shy person, not at all interested in politics as his brother was. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about Fray Chico, um, what, both in terms of his impact on Lula, but also in terms of what you describe as the good boys and the rebels among workers? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the uh, uh, you know, it's the, the, I mean, this is a book, about a, you know, an industry and a, and a milieu in which the divisions between men and women are between girls and boys and men and women is a, is a big one. Uh, and you know, there's lots of attitudes. I mean, the, the, the male culture that, uh, of growing up, I mean, you know, the male culture of growing up in these working class neighborhoods and popular class neighborhoods and things like that. I mean, the boys, their world is different than the world of the girls. Uh, and the girls also, Metalworking is 90% male. So there's a lot of boisterous physical maleness out there and a lot of, um, a lot of um, well, you, could, you could use, it's a stereotype to use the term macho, but a lot of, you know, ma- sort of, you know, vibrant, aggressive masculinity out there and everything like that. And people, young men like that, are considered to be a problem from the point of view of factory owners because they they get pissed off or they don't like something or they want to they want to talk back and stuff which you know as they I quote Foreman and things saying you have to get rid of these people and those are the sort of people young men like this who are who are upset who think that we're who have criticisms of the way they're treated these are the sort of people that you radical movements recruited from Uh, combative workers. And that's what happens with him is he has contact with communists in the working class neighborhood he grows, uh, he grows up in, in particular a Bulgarian immigrant who's a uh, communist and things like that, uh, and comes to be politicized and comes to involve himself in the union and involve himself in organized struggle within factories, which results in him being fired, which is, of course, what happens to all of these people. So he goes that, that's his path. 
Lula, and, and also he had, his mother had wanted him to become a, a, a tornado mechanical, but he refused because he, li- he liked, you know, he like he said, I like pumping iron. I like to, I'd like to work on a truck more than that. I'd like to be into being with girls, you know, I'm like having, you know, I'm doing male things. I mean, he actually is aware that his, cause he ended up as a, he ended up as a welder, which is skilled, but it's a very tough job. It's not a very, it's not as, at all as, elite as the others. Um, so he's a, you know, he's the rebel of the family. And he's, he's the rebel of the family from a young age as well. He's also, he's aggressive from a young age. He also claims that he's always been, he claims always to have been an atheist. He says that he bit the priest when he was baptized, uh, which of course can't possibly be true, but on the, or if it is, it's simply the interpretation of it, but he's a lot. So he's very, very different from his brother. His brother is the good boy. His brother is the one who's willing to allow his mom to to direct his life, to make him do what he's supposed to do, which requires a lot of policing because there's a lot of, you know, to to get up every day and go to the factory and then go to Sinai and to do the work, the schoolwork and to do the other stuff. It's, you know, and he's very, um, you know, so it's really, and and he doesn't get himself involved with factory fights at all, with fighting with foremen fighting with foremen at all or fighting with factories at all. He doesn't belong to the union. He's got no interest in this political stuff. You know, in fact, if, if anything, he's like most working, working people. There's inflation going on. There's a lot of man confusion in 1964. Ah, oh, the military coup happened. This will be good. The military will straighten things out, which is the attitude that he has, his mother has, the workers in his factory have. While his brother, on the other hand, sees this as a military coup that is bad for the country, that is stopping a you know, a political process because his brother is politicized and he's not. Um, so given this scenario, how is it that, and you explain in the books, but this is kind of the big question, how is it that Lula then um, joined the union actually and, and joined their uh, representatives list? Yeah, I mean, that again is, a, that, that again is actually, that's actually the fruit of his brother. Um, you know, his brother, uh, Uh, is linked to, he's not yet a member, but he's part of the leftists, a group of, one of the groups of leftists in the union and things like that. And they, you know, putting, putting together a union slate, even under the dictatorship, uh, you have union elections and people need to get, uh, you know, people need to get votes. So political compositions are done. In other words, political deals are done with folks. And, and he's approached with the idea that he would run from his factory. He decides not to because there's somebody already on the, who's, you know, it's already from his factory. Uh, and he's afraid that the person will get laid off if he, if he doesn't have, if he's not a union director. So he suggests his brother and his brother's at a factory with a couple of thousand, thousand or more workers has nobody in the union, in the union leadership. Uh, and his brother's not that interested, but he comes to be interested. But he's not interested for reasons like, you know, he wants to fight back against the, um, he wants to fight back against employers or anything like that. But because the men who run the union are not, are, are energetic men. And, and they're, they're, I mean, Lula himself says it's, he got, was bitten by the blue fly. The bitten by the blue fly is a Brazilian expression about, am, about ambition. The idea that you could make something out of your life, to try something else out that would give you widen your horizons and all this sort of thing. So he get, that's how he ends up in the union. At first, is not a full time uh, person, and then in '72 he becomes a he run when he runs a second time he will become a full time union officer. 
But so he starts off and he enters the union in a very typical way, but a way that's not really related so much to, uh, you know, to political, uh, to political or class struggle or something like that. And he, and part of the things, the aspects of his personality, you know, his enormous sociability, his capacity to connect with people, you know, his fact that he's funny, he's very funny, uh, you know, has a, has a good sense of humor. He's not full of himself. Uh, he's not a, he doesn't harangue and he's not like, I'm afraid Chico Lula complains a lot about the fact that he and his family couldn't stand him constantly preaching at him at them, and all this sort of thing. It was, I mean, if you know anybody who's super political, who doesn't yet know how to modulate, you can imagine what that's like, you know, where you're there, they are always no better than you and know what you should be doing. So it's a, you know, so that's how he gets involved with the union. And then, you know, he, and then he, by, you know, and his behavior in general in the union is, he doesn't make waves. He, he starts, he starts in a way, another apprenticeship, uh, you know, to become a union leader. Uh, you know, and he acts in a cautious way. He doesn't, um, you know, he, he works in a cautious way and he doesn't, he doesn't try to, on the other hand, he's allied with somebody who's very un, who, in some ways, is unpopular, especially with leftists in the in the in the in the union. But on the other hand, he also makes a point of being friends with the leftists. So, from his point of view, being friends with everybody is a good idea. This is the part of the formula about his leadership about creating a convergence across a difference. In other words, of of gathering people into a network of people around him, including people who don't like each other, and that's one of the things that that. that Category, there's a Brazilian word, agregador, um, a bringing together sort of a personality. Somebody who's interested in, you know, and it's, and the idea is that the more people that relate to him and come to relate to him above him, below him, to the side, you know, and so on, the more people converge and that he's got connections with, uh, the possibility exists to create power to make things happen. And when something then happens, people redefine their relations with each other and they end up with a different configuration of relationships. So that's kind of the, the part of what I talk about is the politics of cunning, you know, that's there, which is being realistic, ruthlessly realistic about things, uh, not pie in the sky, not the revolution or when socialism comes, it means this or that, but rather, you know, understanding power relations and being able to work within them without, on the other hand, simply becoming either an informer or a pusha saco, somebody, uh, somebody who kisses ass and doesn't have an independent position. I was just going to ask you about the politics of Canon, but you answered my question. Um, so, and talk, talking a little bit more about his brother, he was kidnapped and tortured by the military just a few months after becoming um, vice director of his union. And this obviously affected Lula, eventually also leading him to organize major strikes that caught national attention that brought him to the front page of newspapers and TV news. Could you talk about this, the importance of these strikes? Yeah, um, I think there's two, you know, there's two questions that, that come up in this regard. One is that, you know, if, if intellectuals, And so and if intellectuals after 1964 or after 1968, when radical students and radical student movements thought they were all about the idea of a worker peasant student alliance that was going to, it's exactly the spirit of what I saw in, Mex in Mexico City in 1968, 
in the rat in the student demonstrations and building occupations and so on. You know, but after 68, when the, there was no response by workers, just like after 64, there was no response. A lot of people, even on the left, sort of went, well, obviously we were wrong. Workers are not. They're, they're, they're conformists. They're whatever. And But the weird thing is that as soon as the strikes happened in 1978, but especially then 79 and 80, all of a sudden all the stuff being produced by sociologists, almost all of it seemed to suggest that it was natural that the working class fought back because the working class was being exploited and dominated and was, was, had always resisted the military regime and so on and so forth. And they completely forgot the reality, which could be shown in, in sur- factory surveys, in public opinion surveys, in, uh, you know, in every possible sort of ag- attitude, inclu- is that the political attitudes of workers in metal workers of ABC were very favorable to the military regime in the early 1970s. Uh, it was a period of the economic miracle where Brazil, you know, Brazil grew by, you know, 10% a year for four years and a half for four years in a row and where jobs and factories were, were transforming themselves. I mean, it was really good times and they didn't have any, you know, they were, you know, the complaints of radical students of democratic politicians and, you know, and uh, people who are worried about freedom of speech and freedom of press or worried about, you know, a, a, a secret police running amok and torturing people, which actually, from the point of view of the majority of the popular population of Brazil, you know, you don't want to do stuff that's dangerous because you know that this is what happens. Like the idea, I have a right to have to be a communist. I have a right to read Karl Marx if I want to. I have a right to do this or a right to do that. That's not the way they see it. So what's really remarkable is how in the world did a group of workers with these attitudes end up becoming the main, someone of the main spearheads of the opposition to the military regime? And that's the question that people, because people were looking, you know, coming up with a, character, a timeless characterization after the strikes began, just like they came up with a tire, uh, the opposite timeless generalization, workers are conformist, but they don't understand how workers came to change their views. And that was as a result of a sequence of, a particular sequence of events. It wasn't automatic in any way. And that's where the question about, about leadership comes, you know, leadership comes in and about the unfolding of events, the process by which they become radicalized. Uh, which is a process involving individual views, but it also involves the coming to constitute themselves you know, as a collective that sees itself as an actor. Uh, because most of the time, you know, if you have uh, 40,000 workers in a, you know, in every going into a VW factory, you could say, well, wow, they must feel like they're the working class or they are the, you know, something like that. But no, they actually see themselves as a, you know, I don't know, it's 25,000 individuals, you know, 40,000 individuals and then a bunch of cliques and friendship cl- groups and, and, and things like that. But the process by which, by closing into, by shutting down the factories, you know, the process by which over three years, they come to feel that they can act collectively. Because before, what the people in the bottom of Brazilian society always thought was, we are weak. We are trampled upon. We, are, we never get a chance. We're never going to have a chance. It's an illusion. All these people who want to talk about changing things like when you know when you say oh we're going to change things radically well, I'm not, no, I mean, what do you mean change things radically i can't stop my foreman from you know 
hitting me when he's angry with me. You know, you expect me to believe that we're going to force them to pay us better wages? No way. So it's a process by which they come to feel and emerge as a group that sees itself and takes on a collective identity, but it's not anything automatic. And it didn't occur. There are metal workers in just in Sao Paulo next door that it doesn't happen to. You know what I mean? But this particular group of people in this particular place with this particular configuration with Lula at the head, but Lula not alone, but Lula with all of the people connected to him, the, all of the levels of leadership that have been recruited and, and uh, that provide in a way the spine of this process by which they become a group. Um, from another sector, another figure that was making his way up to the presidency parallel to Lula was Fernando Henrique Cardoso that you mentioned before. Besides being another key figure in the end of the military rule and the transition to democracy and known of course, for his work on dependency theory. He became president of Brazil for two consecutive terms from 1995 to 2003. You say in the book that uh, despite the competition and different backgrounds, neither Cardoso nor Lula would have made it to Brazil presidency without the other. Could you talk about their relationship and how they influenced each other? Yeah, I mean, Lula, um, uh, Lula first, well, Fernando Henrique first met Lula In 1973, when he was brought along by Paulo Vidal, the head of the union, um, and didn't say anything because Lula knew that when you're, you know, at that point, you don't talk when you're not supposed to talk. You're there to learn and to follow, to see what people do. So, you know, Fernando Enrique had been interested in 1958. He had started to publish things about workers. He had run a program that did some of the big studies at Luis Pereira and other people. Uh, center uh, that had been this, and considered himself an expert on workers. Um, he wasn't, but, um, and he's a somebody, he's an interesting person because he comes from a, his family, he comes from a well-off, you know, he comes from a well, a distinguished family, uh, including his father was a military, left a, a nationalist military officer and things like that. Um, as a young kid, he was a, he, he briefly belonged to communist youth, and then he was associated with sort of more or less communist intellectuals in the 50s and, and early 60s. And then he emerges after the, you know, um, after the coup as the lead, as, as the sort of the brave leader of leftist intellectuals. He ends a book in 1965 saying either socialism or barbarism. Uh, and everything else. I think it's completely disconnected from the rest of the book, but it sounds great. I mean, he's a very, you know, he's a very impressive, you know, he's an impressive intellectual. He's an impressive, um, you know, he, he's idolized by, he's idolized by uh, other intellectuals and so on. Uh, you know, by the time you go, on the other hand, he's also very aristocratic in his manner and his ba bearing and everything else. And, and uh, you know, his subsequent trajectory in the 70s, he's going to, in the 1970s, um, he gets demoted, he gets forcibly retired from the University of Sao Paulo at the same time as my professor, along with 50 other professors, just really important professors in 1968. In the 70s, he's actually an ally and works for several years in conjunction with Lula. They, Lula's union, it provides support for his attempt to run uh, as uh, for a senator in 1978. Uh, in fact, the, probably the Lula's Union was probably the only group with money that actually supported his effort, which got him elected a, uh, an alternate uh, for senator. Um, and he's involved with all the discussions about creating a, a, some sort of radical party, some sort of workers party or something like that. 
So he's very, you know, they're, they're very close. They go picketing. They, they hand out leaflets during the strikes together. They are, you know, he, he's a big supporter of the strikes and all of this sort of thing. So there's a, they're very close in the 70s. They're kind of the two most important leaders of the opposition in um, of the sort of so, social movement, civil society opposition in Sao Paulo. And, but their trajectories are going to are going to diverge um, in the nineteen um, in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties with Lula, with Fernando Henrique, uh, you know, not joining the PT, which would restrict his ambitions because he also has ambitions. His friends, he always insists that he was an accidental president, but actually, his friends in the same books that profile. That do that profile him. His friends say he'd always wanted to be president. <laughs> it was always what he thought he should be. But um, you know, but he becomes a you know he becomes a major figure, kind of centrist figure in the you know in in but more principled than some of the other uh, opposition figures, and forms his own party, the PSDB, in 1988. Uh, and then you know when he you know in the 1994 when he comes to power by then he's sort of shifted his discourse more to the more to the right more towards political science more towards away from dependency theory if you in an anti-imperialist sense or something like that and he ends up adopt going with the wave of neoliberalism uh, so he really his term is you know really represented uh, both a broad and to hyperinflation, which was super important, but at the same time it's associated with a set of reforms that the PT was completely opposed to, completely and totally opposed to. And neoliberal reforms, in other words, Fernando Enrique is like Menem. He comes out of a certain background where you would expect him to be opposed to it, and the historic alliances and that they represented would be opposed to it. But in fact, he goes the neoliberal route, which deeply weakens the organized working class and, and so on, which is part of the reason the argument Lula is making in 2000 is that, look, there, there's no factories with 40,000 people anymore. Because so many factories have closed. Everything is, you know, there's no, we're in a completely different world. And in this world, the only path to coming up with anything that would let us achieve any of our goals and objectives is to go through the political route and to have the real impact to become the president is the place. So they have a long now. Lula Fernando Enrique was a wonderful person in overseeing the transition. He oversaw and blessed the transition. He became kind of the patron saint of the conservative classes and the middle and upper classes as president still vastly respected by them and things like that. Although he's someone who is never good for getting votes and all of whose candidates after he finished office from his party, all of them were defeated by Lula and his party. So, you know, it's a, it's a complicated relationship. Um, uh, and, and Lula's, you know, Lula's attitude towards Fernando Enrique is much more, and there's a much greater consistency to Lula's narrative and discussion than there is with Fernando Enrique, because in some ways he does move. I mean, he, he moves in ways that he can't fully explain or justify to himself. Uh, but again, they're too great. You know, now looking at it now, I mean, those 16 years are amazing, given what you have in Brazil today or what you got with Temer after the impeachment of Dilma. Let's go to Lula's years then. Um, after several runs for the national presidency, he wins the elections in 2002, is reelected in 2006, and he's able to successfully launch his chosen candidate, Dilma Rousseff, to the presidency in 2010. What did Lula's victory mean for the left, the workers, 
and from Brazil in general, and what was his impact? Yeah, I mean the the, the period that the period of time that uh, you know, if you think about where, what the 1990s was like in Latin America or elsewhere, actually, uh, even even globally, the left really whatever you want to define the left as, but the <laughs> left seemed to have had. You know, even if you had not been supporters of the Soviet Union or something like that, the fall of the Soviet Union, the discrediting of socialism, the rise of, you know, the idea of globalization, there is no alternative. Uh, you know, the, you know, capitalism is the limit of what can be imagined and so on. And this, you know, this was a, a bad time. And, the, and Lula, the PT and Lula coming out of having done really well in 89, uh, almost winning the presidency with, you know, 46% of the valid vote in a very polarized election. Lula says, I'm really glad I didn't get elected in 89, because if I had, probably there would have been a military coup. It was still a time where the society, the struggle of a us and them attitude was still very, very powerful in Brazilian society about the military regime. Um, and, you know, the, the thing was that the, you know, Lula, Lula played a major role again, as an agregador, as somebody who brings people together and creating a, a set of meetings, the Forum of Sao Paulo, a set of meetings that brought together leaders of all of the major leftist groups in Latin America, regardless of their ideology. And you won't be surprised, of course, that that uh, that Argentina, it allowed any leftist group to could join the Forum of Sao Paulo. Most countries had like one or two or three or something like that. But actually in the early days, in the 90s, the Argentina would have like 13. Uh, none of them with any influence, of course. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, and, 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 you know, bringing people together completely different, Marxist, Leninist parties, armed guerrilla movements, you know, ex-guerrilla movements, people who claim to be simply nationalists and so on, and creating a platform of anti-neoliberalism as being a drawing a different set of boundaries about what's going on where, you know, in Latin American society. And when the big surprise in 98 with the election of Chavez who would have been thought of as a sort of a classic Peron-style populist with a, a message a lot like Peron's message against the oligarchy and uh, and so on and so forth, and against the you know the UN anti-imperialist, um, you know uh, that's a big surprise. But the next step with Lula's winning in two thousand two, that's the his win in two thousand two is the beginning of what comes to be known as the Latin American left turns. And by the time you get to 2010, two-thirds of the population of South America is going to be under governments, a variety of diversity of governments of different ideologies, whose leaders might have different ideologies and things, but all of whom are united against neoliberalism and in favor of regional integration and in favor of an independent role in the world. So, you know, and Brazil is really at the center as the largest country and the wealthiest one, but also the, is at the center of holding this together because there's a lot of political differences between the far left of the left turns, which Chavez is usually identified with, versus the more moderate parts of the, of the, uh, of the left turns, which might be like Tabaré Vázquez in Uruguay or something like that. So, you know, what you're talking about is a role. It's a period where, you know, as Lula says, you know, it was proven that we could, you know, that we can improve the lives of our people 
you know, by policies. And they're not particularly radical policies. If you look at the policies he was advocating in the 80s when he was calling for expropriations, refusal to pay the foreign debt, and a lot of other things, none of which were going to happen, but that he, he campaigned for versus what they actually accomplished. But the fact is, they managed to, you know, they managed to, in the Brazilian case, they managed to lower the levels of inequality. They managed to create a, a program that, that assisted the most destitute, the family fellowship program that reached 50 million people. Uh, and, and, and to win the approval, the idea that, you know, Lula said it's always that everyone is afraid of electing the left because they're afraid they're going to ruin the economy and mess everything up. And the experience says, you know, as he would be the first to say, you know, hell, we turned out to be better at running capitalism than the capitalist politicians were. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's not capitalism. And he said, and besides, helping the poor, he said, uh, what, you know, helping the poor is the easiest thing to do in the world. It only is, you know, it's much less than we pay for the, you know, the pensions for state functionaries and the military and judges and the rest of it. That's you know, actually a big chunk of the Brazilian budget. And they're in Bolsa Familia is like less than 3%. And he said, if it was so cheap, how come we didn't help 50 million people before? You know what I mean? You know, or 50 million families before. And the answer was because there was no will, you know, to, to address these questions. People assumed hunger and starvation were simply the fate of people, you know, uh, and things like that. So it established a different sense of possibility in Latin America. And it's a very... You know, then it was followed by um, a resurgence of the right, but it's turned out to be a very fragile resurgence on the part of the right. So it's been a, you know, Latin America is a politically extremely interesting, very, very complicated society, every single one of these societies and then the regions within them. But, you know, but the experience, you know, the, the Lula government is at the center of it. And again, typical of his politics of cunning, Lula is best friends with Chavez and he's best friends with George W. Bush. The U.S. president, the U.S. Republican president, he manages to keep them both relating to him, with him, him in the middle. You know, the U.S. is afraid of losing influence in the context of a bunch of leftists. Lula says, "Oh, I'm the moderate." With Chavez, you know, Chavez is aware, you know, that Lula's not. But on the other hand, Chavez needs allies. He can't simply go off the deep end completely on his own. So again, it's calculating how to how to position yourself in the, uh, you know, how to position yourself in this regard. And then you have, as you include in your book, Obama saying when he met him the first time, he's the man, the most popular politician of the world. <laughs> yeah, because he ended his presidency in 2010 with, you know, 80 to 90 percent of all social classes saying his, his government had been, his second term had been uh, good or excellent. You know, that's the that's the basis for that claim. You know, the most popular president, um, you know, I mean, he's, a you know, Really, I mean, I, I say it in the book at one point. I mean, if you look at his record in presidential politics, he's the Pele of, of, of <laughs> world presidential politics, except that he's actually won four consecutive times and may win next year, in which case would be five. Uh, you know, it's really pretty remarkable for a single political figure to have managed to stay relevant from the late 70s all the way through to the president. And Fernando Enrique's party has essentially disappeared. It doesn't have a, it got no votes in 2018. It's, it's, it's gone, uh, you know, because, and that's the difference. Because it's never just Lula. It's Lula, but then there's also the, a party. And that's one of the big things about Lula that makes him not a populist. 
is that he believes in organization, you know, which is a big difference. Organization and organizations having their own, you know, integrity and their own capacity. I mean, he didn't always agree with policies decided by the PT, but he didn't simply command the PT to do what he wanted them to do. He had to get the moment where he could convince them, like he did in 2000, hey, if we want to have a shot to make things look less depressing, maybe we should change our policy that might let us elect mayors of big cities that would help us then perhaps become president, reach the presidency. Um, there's a chance that in future uh, editions of this book, you'll need to add a new chapter. Since last May, uh, Lula announced that he's running for a third term in the 2022 presidential elections against President Jair Bolsonaro. What do you think about that? And maybe if you want to say something about the assault he suffered and, of course, Dilma Rousseff by the right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, the changes in Brazil, I mean, you know, cunning is not... um, Cunning in English is, in the best word in Portuguese is a variety of them, but astucia is the closest. And, but cunning as in the English language tends to be thought of as being a negative thing. Um, it actually isn't if you go to the history of the word cunning, which is also about knowing how to operate. And it's actually about being educated and being capable and all of this. But cunning itself as a tool, I mean, the reason I use it in here is because cunning is how the people on the bottom of Brazilian society and the bottom of most societies, if they're powerless or relatively powerless, they learn to operate. It's a little bit like the metaphor that, um, you know, about, uh, you know, mice don't sleep well in the same cage with the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. Because the elephant has always got the chance. If it lies down, it's going to crush us. If it's, you know, you're always having to be aware, where are the feet? I have to do. So, you know, they, and, they, and cunning is used, cunning, cunning is used as a personal strategy of survival and getting ahead and a recognition that you, you know, that you need to maneuver and so on. But it's mostly in most of people's use of it. It's about uh, individualistic maneuvering for personal benefit, which could even be at the expense of other people. This is the difference in Lula's politics of cunning. Uh, well, a politics of cunning makes it different already, but is that he's using these ways of maneuvering in the world for a transformative purpose, not to simply reproduce. Because when people use, you know, um, you know, go after personal advantage by cutting corners or cultivating somebody to get a favor that they need and so on, they're reinforcing or they're reproducing the existing power structure. But Lula is, uses cunning as a, and that type of maneuvering as a way to change things, but not change things like overnight or he's not, not a revolution or anything like that. And, you know, and, but at the same time, the changes that happened during the 13 years that Lula was in the, was Lula and his party had the presidency, even the fact that he could get, a woman elected, a woman who had never run for public office, Dilma Rousseff, and a woman who personally is pretty antipathetic. I mean, she's a wonderful <laughs> administrator, a brave woman, a courageous woman, incredibly smart. He wanted to, you know. But, you know, the fact that he could get her elected, you know, on his personal authority, you know, that obviously is quite remarkable. But the changes during the Lula Dilma years, you know, especially the economic growth that happened in part because of the commodities boom, 
It's always good to have an economic boom, go, a possibility of an economic boom to go on to help you in doing this. But the fact is that Brazil is changing in ways that were made peop- a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot of people in the middle and upper classes and in the richer states and everything else. And, you know, the, uh, and that's what, you know, the, 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 the backlash you know, and it's it's I don't want to simplify oversimplify it or anything like that. But, you know, the fact is that policies that allow that that created and, and uh, quotas systems for people from poor backgrounds and people who are black to be able to be admitted to the tuition free federal universities, which are the best. The fact that, you know, the the uh, the, the distribution of, um, you know, of uh you know, of cash, a, a modest redistribution of money to the popular classes and things that ended up with people for the first time actually taking, uh, which is a source of endless amounts of commentary and Facebook posts and things like that about airports having people in it that obviously have never been in a passport, but have, mm-hmm. have been in an airport before. You know what I mean? Crowding things and acting, you know, bringing their baskets of food with them from the countryside or something like that. I mean, all this sort of weird things. And, and, and you know, there's, so there's a lot of reactions. Plus, it also upset things because Brazil is a society, it has the world's largest number of domestic servants. Uh, it also created, passed a constitutional amendment that gave, finally gave labor rights to um, to domestic servants, which meant that now you're supposed to pay social security so that they get a pension and you're supposed to pay them minimum wage, which they never did. Uh, and things like that. So you're even hurting people who employ middle class, even lower middle class people have servants in Brazil. A lot of people are affected by some of these changes. So, you know, the makings are there for uh, the makings are there for a kind of a conservative sort of backlash lifestyle sort of um, backlash. And then you've got the question about the maneuvering. I mean, Lula always said, you know, rich people have never got, have never gotten, you know, gotten rich throughout all my government and Dilma's government. You know, yeah, they, I mean, poor people have gotten richer than faster and improved their life, living standards more than rich people have, but it's been, you know, it's been working, but the disaffection in the upper classes, because after winning four in a row, especially 2014, Fernando Enrique's party and and uh, refused to accept the legitimacy of the results, and that opened a p- period of contestation that's going to result in um in an unconstitutional or an illegal uh, impeachment of Dilma, because in some ways what was happening was that if you if they could continue if they could win the fourth time when the and she only won by fifty one percent of the vote. The fear that's happening in the top Brazilian society and in traditional sectors and the wealthy states and things is like, crap, we, they may never get out of office. They may just continue perpetuating themselves in power with us, you know, who's, you know, us on the outside, you know, and, and so, you know, it becomes a very, and they ended up because of the disruption of this, you know, the, of this whole thing based around charges of corruption and there's endless corruption in Brazil. All government is a business. Politics is a business. Corruption is part of it. You will find people, you arrest them, you throw them in jail. That's what you're supposed to do. But they turned it into a campaign that it's the PT uniquely and Lula in particular. They jailed him. They impeached Dilma and so on. And they ended up, because all of the people who led their effort were themselves corrupt, with electing a horrible far-right troll and an incompetent man, Bolsonaro. 
So right now, you know, Lula, you know, after two years in jail was was released. The Supreme Court recognized because of the hacker's findings that it was fraud, that the entire set of prosecutions against him were fraudulent. They were self-evidently fraudulent at the time, but the whole mass media, the whole, you know, international community, most educated people and so on all bought into this myth. Uh, and the Supreme Court reversed itself and, and dismissed, and now all the courts have dismissed all of the charges. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of types of charges filed against him. They've all been dismissed, and now he can run again. If he had run in 2018, even from jail, if he'd been allowed to be on the ballot, he would have won, according to all the <laughs> polls. So they kept him off, and now they face him coming back again. Except now a lot of them are chastened, and many of them have realized that they have made a big mistake. Uh, and things like that. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, there, there's so much more to discuss about this book. It chapter is a world of its own, uh, and I recommend everyone to buy it, and uh, not even just for those interested in Brazil's history or Latin American history, but also workers' history, or just to have like an excellent example of how to rethink biographies. And we're taking a lot of your time, but just before wrapping up, could I ask uh, what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm working on uh, the project that I'm most excited about, but it's been put the, the schedule's been put back because of the um, because of COVID and the ban on travel to Brazil with my research funds from from here, which are now lifted, so I'll be able to go back again. Is a project dealing with the um, uh, dealing with the photographic record of the strikes because the big dramatic thing of the strikes that made it so memorable and that created really em emblematic images of this period of Brazilian history all involve this sequence of dozens and dozens of stadium rallies of strikers, uh, sometimes crowds as large as 60 or 70,000 people, many, many times 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, and with Lula speaking to the crowd. And one of the things that's always interested me, these are famous, though there's a whole set of really famous photographic images Um, it's not, there isn't televised images because the TV was in the hands of supporters of the military regime and they didn't run uh, video of the rallies, but we have a lot of filmmakers made films of these rallies because they were amazing. But people tend to use these kind of to stand in for, these images are used to stand in for this. And they're usually Lula talking to the crowd or something like that. But if you look at my book, you'll see, I do have a picture of Lula talking to the crowd, but the crowd is actually more interesting than Lula is. Uh, and we have a lot of documentation of all of the, um, uh, on paper from the secret police and things about these rallies. But what I've been doing is, is locating tens of thousands of, of, um, of, uh, of negatives and things that allow one to address rallies and the differences between them. And then you can even potentially coordinate it with, you know, coordinate it with um, some of the filmed rallies that are done and things like that. And you could actually probably, and with the recordings we have of some of the speeches and things where you could probably figure it out. And this really has a, an exciting project. It's a little bit different. It's about visual studies is, you know, is in a really, really important and exciting area of research that's emerged in a big way in the last 20 years. And um, at the same time, uh, there's a lot to be learned from the world of visual studies and things, but Again, as an historian, I'm working with it as photographs as evidence, as opposed to, you know, the idea of the, the dynamics of power between who holds the camera and who is looked at in the camera or the, 
you know, bars pumped them or, you know, in a particular image and so on and so forth. Because if you actually have enough pictures, you know, the choice of an editor about what picture to run, and then that's the picture people know, that picture is actually only one of several hundred other pictures of exactly the same moment in time. I have cases of rallies where I have five different photographers that took pictures of the same place, of the same scene. So the idea is to, it'll be complex and it'll require a lot of money, but it, it's also a conceptual thing is the idea of, you know, taking images out of the notion of images and turning them into uh, thinking of them as being like the, uh, as evidence out of which you can build something where essentially you could write then about the difference, the different rallies and how they were different from each other, rather than just using any photo of a rally to suggest that it's the same as every other one. Mm. Thank you so much. Sounds like an amazing project. Actually, at the beginning of the book, I just remember you um, you put together uh, two images of Lula. Um, one is like a, a, a the 1980 uh, police mugshot of him being shown like a subversive, detained person, and then the other one is um, his presidential portrait of 2003. And you sort of create like a visual narrative with those two images in. Uh, in one page and I know it goes a little bit maybe against what you were just saying but do you see yourself also creating some kind of visual essays as well playing with well, images in that way? way and could get the funding what I would like to do would be to create would be to put tens of thousands of images in sequence up on for the particular dates up on the web and then have it so that people because there's still lots of people alive who were there to identify the people in the pictures and to write their own recollections of what they felt when they were there. Kids were brought, kids who were, the wives were encouraged to bring their kids to these things. It was like a big family event as well. They were always kept, you know, they held them early in the day so that the men wouldn't have been drinking. Uh, that's important during a strike. Uh, you know, but I mean, there's a lot of different ways that one could do it. You know, there's a, there's a picture, the front cover picture, I think is well worth thinking about. And it's a great subject if you know someone looking for a fabulous photographer to write about. Uh, he ought to be a lot more famous. Ricardo Stuckert, who took the picture on the front cover, which um, I don't think it won it, but it got nominated for the, for the best book cover um, this year um, for the university presses. But um, Ricardo Stuckert is, is, has been, uh, was Lula's presidential uh, photographer who has now stayed with Lula since then. Uh, as, his pri as his private photographer who documents everything. He's got books out. But he's also from a family of presidential photographers, <laughs> a whole family of them. And, and his other thing he likes pictures of is that our uh, indigenous people in the Amazon. But he's a super interesting guy. He's young as well. And when you watch him, when you watch him taking pictures, he takes the most amazing pictures because most pictures of crowds or of a politician talking are very, very stuffy. But, you know, you watch him like I did in 20, December 2019 at a rally. I mean, the way he's moving around and getting to the ground and looking up and, you know, he's like really incredibly energetic. He's got an art to this, but he's probably the most emblematic pictures in the book. And he, you know, including the one of his, the final rally before he goes to jail in, in 2018. Uh, where he's being embraced, Lula in the arms of the people in 2017, big hug uh, by the masses. You know, 
this is him. So if you're, if you know anybody looking for an interesting photographer to work on, Ricardo <laughs> would be, really be the next Sebastian Salgado. Yeah, I mean the, the picture of the, uh, in the front cover is is amazing, and and the project it sounds amazing too. I, I really hope you get the funding necessary to to carry it out. Yeah, um, just, just one final remark about the cover. Yeah. What he's doing there, just so you're aware, is he's doing a funk dance move. A sarada no. <laughs> That's you can tell he's dancing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I really look forward to reading your work again. And, and yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And thank your listeners and thank the, uh, the website.